This is Rob Goldstone, editor of Current Directions in Psychological Science. Our guest today is Matthew Hornsey, professor of management in the School of Business at the University of Queensland. He is the author of a freshly published article, Why Facts Are Not Enough, Understanding and Managing the Motivated Rejection of Science. Thank you very much for being here, Matthew. Thanks for having me, Rob. So take whatever issue you, you want, human-induced climate change, the safety of COVID-19 vaccines, astrology, or the health risks from ingesting genetically modified foods. People have a frustrating tendency to believe things that the scientific consensus says just ain't so. So starting at a broad level, why is this? Do people just not know what the experts believe because they are ensconced in their informational cocoons? Do they not trust the experts or something else? Yeah, when I, I came into this field, I, I actually started with that question. And I thought it would be wonderful if I could find some grand unifying theory for why people reject science. So something that would unite the psychology of creationists and anti-vaxxers and climate skeptics and anti-GM folk and all the rest. Um, but as a field, I think we pretty quickly realized there wasn't going to be one single variable that could explain it all. Uh, basically, the data show that the psychology of all those people, the creationists, the anti-vaxxers, the climate skeptics, the anti-GM folk are quite distinct. And, and if you got all those people mm -hmm. in a room, they wouldn't have a lot in common necessarily. And they, they probably wouldn't even like each other, to be honest. Uh, if, I, if I did have to commit to a single big picture reason why people reject science, uh, I would say that it's because they want to reject the science for some reason. So I come from a motivated reasoning perspective. So you may know the Simon and Garfunkel song with the line, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. That's the perspective I come from, uh, that people don't act like cognitive scientists weighing up evidence before reaching a conclusion. They act more like cognitive lawyers. So they have an outcome in mind and they selectively expose themselves to evidence and they selectively critique the evidence and they selectively remember the evidence in ways that reinforce that conclusion that they want to reach. So from that perspective, uh, the question isn't so much why do people reject the science? The question is more why, why do people want to reject the science? Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, so drilling down on that, what you just said a bit more. So when people grow up, they develop political, religious, philosophical ideologies that will then organize their worldviews. How do these ideologies shape how we process information that comes our way? This is a, a point I associate with the anthropologist Mary Douglas uh, back in the 80s. She was saying that People appraise risk and evidence and science through the lens of their worldviews. And, and there definitely does seem to be evidence for that. 
with climate skepticism in particular, some people have a worldview that big government is bad, that individuals and businesses should have the freedom to do what they want. This, of course, is a worldview you're more likely to see among conservatives, that pro-big business, anti-big government worldview. And for these people, climate science is sort of a nightmare because mitigating climate change does in many ways suggest a big government response to regulate how industry operates. So for these people, it's better to reject the science than to come on board with a solution that they find ideologically toxic. Other people have a worldview that natural things are pure and healthy and human intervention is impure and unhealthy by definition. So of course, if you have that worldview, you're gonna be appraising science around genetic modification quite differently from other people. The other factor that needs to be kept in mind is that the political and ideological differences are gonna be turbocharged and weaponized when politicians choose to draw it into the culture wars. And that's one quite distinctive thing we've seen in the last 20 or 30 years where scientific mm -hmm. issues are getting drawn into the culture wars that define liberals and conservatives. So here in Australia, where you are in the US, Rob, um, it had got to the ridiculous point where your attitudes towards climate science had become something that people wear almost as part of their political gang colors. It's a, it's a shorthand way of signaling that you're a conservative or a liberal. And we're seeing that with the COVID vaccine uh, to a degree as well. And that should not be happening. Um, but I'd say that's a disturbing development where politicians can feel like they can get mileage out of disputing science. Mm -hmm. Great, yeah, thanks. Great answer. Um, so on the hand, one hand, filtering and distorting influences of ideologies are disconcerting. But on the other hand, in some ways, it actually kind of makes me hopeful that people are at least trying to achieve a coherent and consistent worldview. Because in other areas of psychology, it seems that people are frustratingly inconsistent in say how they uh, judge members of their own in-group and members of the out-group. Uh, so to what extent do you think that people are striving for coherence in their beliefs and actions? I do think that people want to believe that they're operating rationally and they want to be internally coherent. I personally think that people are all that consistent and coherent in their worldviews and attitudes, but I do think there's a strong normative pressure to at least appear to be logical in your mind and to be joining the dots rationally in your mind. Um, but in some ways, I know this seems strange, but in some ways that's part of the problem. It's because of that pressure to be consistent and logical that people often say the weirdest things. So if you take climate skeptics, rather than saying, you know what, it just annoys me to think that governments around the world are gonna be using this to increase taxes and to, to regulate business. That just annoys me. Or I'm a Trump supporter and this is my way of showing solidarity. Rather than saying that, there's that pressure to grasp onto quasi-scientific arguments about natural fluctuations in temperatures or solar flares or conspiracy theories about Marxist scientists or Chinese influences. 
something that gives a veneer of logic to what is actually really just a gut reaction. And you see that a lot with creationists too. Mm -hmm. So for me, it should be okay for people to say, you know what, I'm a loyal member of my church in my town in the Midwest, and this is what we believe. Um, but when creationists get interrogated by someone who believes in evolution, I think they often feel like they have no choice. Culturally, they have no choice but to try to defend their argument with logic. And ironically, that's when someone ends up saying crazy things about conspiracies, around scientists burying dinosaur mm. bones and, and that sort of thing. I've actually learned over time not to get distracted by what comes out of people's mouths in terms of their logical arguments and in inverted commas, because they're often strung together post hoc to defend a deeper motivation mm -hmm. that they don't feel as though they can talk about. Interesting, right, right. Can you say something about the role of personal identity and the social identity, the groups that we belong to uh, in shaping what we let ourselves believe? You've mentioned that a little bit with respect to I'm a card carrying Trump supporter, for example. Yeah, yeah, and I think the example I gave earlier about creationism would be another example of social identities shaping what we let ourselves believe. So your attitude towards science becomes less about signaling what you believe, it becomes more about signaling who you are, right, tribally. So if you've been raised in certain fundamentalist communities, saying that you agree with evolution would be code for saying, I don't want to be part of this community anymore. Mm -hmm. It's a way of saying I'm exiting out of this situation. If your community mandates that you say X, whatever that is, then of course there's a strong psychological motivation to say X and preferably it's easy to think X as well. And I completely understand that. Uh, mo most of, personally, most of my communities growing up in the eighties and nineties, they were left-wing communities where it was completely implausible at that time to say that you were pro-nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. And so I was anti-nuclear. I didn't explore the science of that. I didn't do my research. I was just cherry picking science to rationalize a view that I knew I had to have to stay yeah. tight with my communities and my personal identity. Um, with personal identities, I think, I think people sometimes do use anti-science beliefs to advertise their brand as an individual as well. Uh, so the goal of believing in astrology, for example, you know, that might not be so much about getting to the truth. The goal often is to advertise your personal brand as being a little bit creative, a little bit quirky, open to the magic of the universe. Mm -hmm. That's an image you're broadcasting to the world. And I think you can get that with things like anti-vax and climate skepticism too, because holding those views can be a quick way of advertising your personal brand as being non-conformist, someone who's smarter than the rest. So there can be a smug element to it where they see themselves as truth elites who can see things that the mainstream public are just too conformist to see. And, and certainly I see this in my own research, people who are high in reactance. So people who hate being told what to do and they enjoy being non-conformist, they enjoy disagreeing with people. They tend to be higher in anti-science views. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So when we're thinking about probability say that an election has been stolen mm -hmm. or that 
humans are causing global climate change. We're thinking about novel 21st century problems using brains that follow a very slow, protracted evolutionary timescale for change. So humans might be expected to have a hard time keeping up with cultural and technological changes. Can you point to cases where we have difficulties in reaching correct conclusions, even when we have access to the correct information, and these difficulties are due to a mismatch between what our brains evolved for um, and what our current environments look like? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm not an evolutionary psychologist, uh -huh. but but I imagine that in our evolutionary history, we think about what is the most important function of an attitude. Now, historically, the most important function of an attitude would be to be accurate, because accurate construals of the world help you survive in that world. And that's probably not the case so much now, where we can afford to have beliefs that are about signaling our political identities, for example, or signaling mm -hmm. our personal brand. That feels like quite a modern luxury to be able to do that. Um, from an evolutionary point of view, probably the next most important function of a belief is to fit in with your community. Mm, and I don't. don't think that's changed all that much in the last few million years. Mm -hmm. um, what has changed is that now we have access to an infinite array of communities online. And each of those communities have their own silos and their own informational echo chambers and I think we're only just starting to come to grips with how much that online world is contributing to the growth in anti-science views in the last few decades. Um, but certainly the rise of the internet is something that our minds had not evolved to navigate through. Um, the last point is that back in our ancestral past, we probably based most of our beliefs and attitudes on things we could personally experience or things we could personally mm. observe. Um, but now the world is obviously a lot more complex than that. So we're being asked to wrap our heads around things like climate change and vaccination that we can't possibly test for ourselves. And we can't see it and we can't touch it and we can't possibly evaluate all the evidence for ourselves. So it really becomes a leap of faith that we trust the scientists are on our side uh, and that leap of faith is something we're not all that equipped to do from an evolutionary point of view. Hence the influence, I think, of conspiracy theories about what governments and scientists are trying to do. We're not all ready to take that leap of faith. Yeah, right. Um, for a final question to ask you, um, and you've already touched uh, on this with some of your previous answers, but um, given your general understanding of how people come to believe what they do, do you have recommendations for how best to change somebody's mind? So you mentioned before, not necessarily subscribing to um, the, the particular conspiracies that they're 
complaining about um, not to try to force them defensively to go down um, a particular line of argumentation that they wouldn't necessarily subscribe to if they thought about it themselves. But uh, are there other things that you can imagine telling people to do if they're trying to get somebody to listen to science? Yeah, I mean, I think that my number one recommendation, as you say, is not to obsess with what comes out of people's mouths, which sounds strange. Um, but I feel as though if you're taking all the words literally that are coming out of people's mouths, then you go down a cul-de-sac very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and so I talk about this in the current directions paper. Um, we use a, a, a tree metaphor to talk about where to focus. So what you see above the surface, you know, the branches and leaves of the tree, that's what people say. And, and the most pointless thing you can do, I think, is to jump on what people say and try to defeat it immediately with logic and with evidence. Yeah. You know, think about the last time you managed to convert a, a climate skeptic or convert an anti-vaxxer with evidence alone. This has never worked for me. I don't know if it's ever worked for you, Rob, but, but most of us have that frustration where you feel as though you're just landing one knockout blow after another. You're just smashing the argument with data and logic and evidence that people don't change their mind. Um, and that's because we're missing the point about what's driving the attitudes in the first place. Scientists are particularly bad at this because we're so in love with facts and evidence. This is what influences us, right? So we think that's what's going to influence other people as well. Um, but what I would argue is that you need to look beyond what people say and focus on what lies underneath the surface. So in the tree metaphor, this is what we call the attitude roots. And these are the worldviews and, and identity issues and uh, anxieties that motivate the surface attitudes. So these are the things that answer the question, why would people want to reject science? Um, so what I argue is that you need to find out what is motivating an attitude, and then you tailor a message to align with that underlying motivation. Mm -hmm, great. So if, if people are climate skeptical, because they hate government regulation, and they're all about the free market, um, explain that there are free market friendly ways to mitigate climate change. Mm -hmm. Or if people see being climate skeptical as a way of advertising their credentials as conservative, use conservative values to convert them. Uh, use conservative friendly frames about how mitigating climate change will help with energy security. This is something that re resonates with conservatives. Yeah. How it helps protect a traditional way of life. How it will open up jobs and technologies. Uh, this, is, this is what I call in the paper jujitsu persuasion. Jiu-Jitsu is a martial art that, that teaches people not to take on people's force directly, but to work with your opponent's force. Mm -hmm. right? So a lightweight person can use leverage and gravity and the other person's momentum to defeat a more heavyweight opponent. And I use that as a metaphor for persuasion. Don't start with your own head and bash people around the head with your own arguments. Start with the audience head. Work out what's motivating them and then come up with arguments that are congenial to that motivation, work with their momentum. So if it's done right, I think, jujitsu persuasion should feel non-judgmental, it should feel empathic, it should feel validating. Uh, and it's precisely because of that, people are more likely to listen to you with this approach than if you preach at them uh, with evidence alone. Great.
All right. Um, that's all the time we have for in this conversation with Dr. Matthew Hornsey. Thank you very much, Matthew, for the informative and persuasive thoughts. Yeah, thanks so much, Rob.